Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News and Sports Day. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by Evan Grant. Hello, Evan. Good morning, Kevin. Uh, all right, Evan. The, 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 there was a big uh, big draft over the weekend, and the Rangers made all the news. They made the, the news. They, they were the biggest news of the draft. First of all, they, they draft Kumar Rocker with the third pick, a guy who was projected to go maybe mid-first round, uh, a guy that uh, that – uh, yours truly and a lot of other people wrote last summer that boy, this is what you got to tank for. There was that the national movement tank for Kumar. Well, that uh, was two summers ago. Two summers ago, yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, but anyway, uh, so yeah, so now, so now here we are, and the Rangers ended up not only with Jack Leiter but his teammate Kumar Rocker. So let's talk about that first. Uh, then we'll get to the Brock Porter uh, decision, and and these two things may be interlinked, as you wrote uh, for today's Dallas Morning News. Um, but first of all, let's talk about Kumar Rocker. Did you have any indication whatsoever that they were thinking about doing that? No, I mean, I, I think that at, at best, in conversations I had, I got the impression that it was very tangential and that the conversations in the room were focused on the hope that Jackson Holiday would be there. And if Holiday wasn't there, which of these guys with upside um, did they feel the best about? Elijah Green. I really don't think the Rangers felt that Drew Jones would ever get to them, but I think there was some conversation Green versus Jones. And I think there was some conversation Green versus Tremar Johnson. And then I think ultimately there was some conversation, well, Kevin Parada is a college player. He's a very advanced college player, had good results as a, as a collegian. Would he get here quickly? Um, and, and so that's what I thought was taking place inside the room. Um, I did not foresee Kumar Rocker coming just because I think there were so many questions about health. And, and here's the thing, Kevin, when you're off the college radar, right, um, and when you're off the high school showcase circuit, it seems like the national – spectrum of draft uh, experts kind of almost forgets about you. And and to some extent, I think that happened a little bit with Kumar. Um, so no, I did not foresee that coming. Um, and I got to admit, when I went downstairs from the press box to talk to Chris Young and Kip Fag after, after the announcement was made, um, one of them looked at me and said, uh, you look a little bit disappointed. And I said, no, I, I'm not disappointed. It's not my draft pick to make, but I'm just still trying to wrap my, my head around it because if you had told me 16 months ago that you guys would end up with Lighter and Rocker, I'd have said you're nuts. Um, and, and here you are all of a sudden with that, and I'm trying to decide if that's actually a good thing or not. Now let me ask you this because I don't have any problem with the pick at all. I've, as we know, the, 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 uh, the draft's a crapshoot, and, and you just don't know how these guys are going to turn out and, and who's going to be what. Now, if Elijah Green or Tamar Johnson turns into a, a, a superstar and then Kumar Rocker doesn't work out, well, then this is going to be a fail. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, but uh, right now, as it is, I think that Kumar Rocker has as probably good a chance to, to be a star as, as those guys do. Uh, we'll see. Uh, you know, the he, he played it for uh, in his independent league this summer, uh, and the Rangers did see him up there. They did get him at 99. Uh, he was consistently between 95 and 98. So that's really good. Those were the concerns. 
his, uh, when he was still at Georgia, I mean, I'm sorry, when he was still at Vanderbilt, was that, uh, well, his velocity is down. There, there's something the matter here. And, I, and I've read what his, his coach, Tim Corbin, said, which was, and this was just a couple of weeks ago, he said, well, he didn't have any indication he had any kind of injury. Well, I don't know about that. I don't know if there's, you can call it arm fatigue. I don't know what you could call it, but it's always concerning when a guy's velocity drops. Listen, I, I'll just go back to this, and I'm no baseball expert by any stretch, but when I saw Kumar Rocker at Vanderbilt in May of 2021 uh, facing Ole Miss, he threw a couple of 92, 93-mile-an-hour fastballs in the first inning and pretty much did away with it after the first inning. Now, what stood out, besides the fact that he didn't have a fastball to speak of, was with John Daniels sitting there in the stands and, and several of, of the Rangers front office personnel there, Kumar used off-speed stuff, breaking pitches, pitched just really, really well to last seven innings against a very good old Miss team. And so I think that even while the Rangers were concerned about the velocity and everybody was concerned about the velocity, the Rangers had no doubts. And this is one thing that I think put them over the top was, hey, the risk on Kumar was all medical. Um, and they felt good about the solving of the medical issues. There were no questions about his ability to reach his potential if he's healthy. Um, the guy's a, 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 an uber competitor. He is, he's, he's got great pitch ability and, and knows what he's doing on the mound. Uh, and, and they really like the makeup. So when you took all that into fa- in, in, into discussion and you were able to say, we're comfortable with what Neil Elitrosh, one of the world's most renowned sports orthopedists, was telling us on the medical reports, we were okay with this, with this decision. Yeah, one of the other things that uh, Tim Corbin said, told the Nashville Tennessean, was that uh, he obviously has seen um, uh, Kumar and he said he's, he's frankly never looked better. He, he thinks that physically he looks terrific. He's in really good shape. Um, I don't think I don't know that that was ever a real concern for anybody. He was probably a little heavy uh, there at, at uh, Vanderbilt, but you know he's, he's a big he's, man. I mean, but I, I, listen, he's still young. I, I just can't put a whole lot of stock into what anybody says, uh, both on the positive and the negative side around the draft, because nobody's going to say, "Oh, Kumar looks terrible." Kip Fag's not going to tell me that he looked worse. In the in the independent league than he did at, at Vanderbilt. So, I, I, but he you did know, say I, he looked better, and I don't think he, he lied. Said he, looked, he said he looked better than he did in college. And yeah, again, well, I mean, he's not going to lie to you. He may not. He may tell you things that aren't. Uh, he, he he may not tell you the worst things. He's not going to lie to you and say, right. hey, you know. So I, I yeah. Obviously, you take all this stuff with a grain of salt. And I, I don't know if if Kip got talked into that pick or not. I don't know whose call it was uh, finally to to make it on Kumar. Um, but that, well, that's I just the, think in retrospect, Kevin, you now have to look at it as a, as a two part pick, really. I mean, that's the right. other part of it. That's um, what I was just about to say was that, yeah. uh, there's a possibility here that because, uh, uh, Kumar was supposed to go, uh, in the mid first round, uh, that they could probably sign him below slot and that would save them some money to do something if they want to, they did not have a second or third round pick because of the signings of Corey Seager and, uh, Marcus Simeon, uh, they forfeited those picks, so they didn't pick again until the fourth round. And then what happened, Evan? So with the 109th pick overall, they took Brock Porter, the right-handed pitcher from uh, Michigan, who was the Gatorade National Player of the Year, was 9-0, and had three no-hitters that were complete games, and started two others. 
um, allowed nine hits in 58 innings. He's a Clemson commit, and he was considered by Baseball America the number one pitching prospect on their entire draft board. Uh, he was the number number 12 prospect overall. So some of that was, I think, questions about about Rocker and, and exactly where he was. And some of that, I think, was that Dylan Lesko, who had entered the season, the high schooler from Buford, is probably, Buford, Georgia, is probably the number one high school pitcher uh, underwent Tommy John. So now all of a sudden you're sitting there with um, with Brock Porter as the number one pitching prospect in the entire draft, and he had gone unsigned because he had fallen in the first round to a place where teams weren't going to be able to meet what what I've read is kind of somewhere in the three and a half to four million dollar range for a bonus, uh, and teams in the lower half of the first round just didn't have that uh, available based on their draft plans. So now you ask how the Rangers get there. Basically, what they've done, Kevin, is they saved money with Kumar Rocker, a lot of money on the Kumar Rocker deal, and they're basically putting all their eggs in the basket of two picks this year, their first rounder and their fourth rounder, Brock Porter, and they will spend more than $9 million in bonus on the two of those two guys, and that's basically going to be the, the crux of their draft class. Oh, which I don't have any problem with that, obviously. No, I mean, if it, again, if it... If it all works out, look, if it works out and you've got two more guys who are potential top-of-the-rotation starters, now you've got a pool that, in my mind, as of today, consists of Jack Leiter, Cole Wynn, uh, Owen White, Kumar Rocker, Brock Porter, uh, potentially Dane Acker, and, uh, you know, there are some other guys with some real high upside in the system who haven't quite established themselves that much. But once you're talking about a pool of six or eight guys from whom you could call ones and twos, your your, your realistic opportunity of building a championship caliber rotation increases exponentially. Our old pal T.R. Sullivan tweeted the other day that these two guys – meaning Rocker and Leiter, give them the best one-two pitching prospects that they have had since Kenny Rogers and Kevin Brown. Do you agree with that? Um, you know, I, I don't know that Kenny Rogers was ever that, that, that Kenny Rogers was ever considered a great starting pitching prospect. He came up and was a reliever. I would say that, yeah, you could you could go back to the two top five picks, Kevin Brown and Bobby Witt. But you know, Kenny was a late bloomer in a lot of in, in a lot yeah. of ways. He was thirty seven, thirty eighth round. Was he? So um, I, I, I think, yeah. I mean, you you'd have to say that. You know, the the days of the of DVD that was all overhyped. Um, there have been any number of failures among first round picks in in, in Rangers history in, in terms of pitching. They haven't picked in the top five in back to back years in in thirty years. So yeah, you you've taken. You've taken two pitchers in the top three in back-to-back years. Yes, this is, at least on the day after the draft day, this is the best one-two caliber of prospects they've had. Let me ask you this, because this is four years in a row. They, they take a – I'm going I'm to consider Kumar a college pitcher. Uh, four years in a row they've taken a college pick with their first pick. Uh, that is the longest stretch in John Daniels' tenure. Uh, now, the Rangers have done this before. They, they've drafted college players six years in a row. Uh, uh, in, in five years in a row. 
And going back and looking at that list, I'll have to tell you, most of the time, those have been the best players that the Rangers have drafted. Uh, those, those lists include the likes of Bobby Wick, Kevin Brown, uh, Mark Teixeira, um, O.B. McDowell. I mean, that was a flame out, but he did play. Uh, there O.B. Were- McDowell was a serviceable big leaguer. If you get you get O.B. McDowell's career out of a first-round pick, you've done okay. Yeah, you've done all right. There, there were some real bombs among those those college picks, too. And, you know, Drew Meyer was a bomb out. Dylan Tate, by and large, was was a bomb out here. Um uh, Justin Smoke, I don't know how you want to how you want to define. Well, Justin no, Justin Smoke is valuable well, yeah, in the trade for sure. He's a terrific player. He had a long, he had a long productive career. Uh, but my so, point about all this is, does this not point out that John Daniels is saying we got to win now? And and do do you believe, or we're not not maybe right now, but in the next year or two? And do you believe that that John is doing that because uh, he just tired of waiting on these guys or do you believe he feels like uh, maybe my time is short it's time for me to start doing something here well I I, I think I'm gonna change the subject on you entirely by saying I don't think it I don't think anything right now comes you know from John Daniels setting the tone I think it I think at the very least this is a John Daniels Chris Young joint decision and certainly in this particular instance with a college pitcher in Kumar Rocker, a mature pitcher, and back-to-back years with college pitchers and, and, and what they've done. I think Chris gives you a really unique talent at the top of your front office when it comes to picking pitching. On the plus side, this is a this was a long-term big league pitcher who came from a college background, who worked at the major league level as, as an executive in MLB and understood – how teams would try and manipulate the draft and things like that. So I think he's setting a lot of the tone on that front. I think John still certainly is is, is a big part of that. But the other side, you know, the, the cautionary tale would be, if you're a pitcher, do you favor pitchers too much? And, you know, I think that this this organization historically has had a problem developing pitchers. But I think if you also talk to Major League Baseball people, they would tell you that if all things are equal, go for the position player over the pitcher because the position player is going to have more long-term value, um, more everyday value. So I, I think you can make you can make arguments on both cases. I think here this is this is a case of uh, again building a consensus in the room that this was, especially when you factor in the Brock Porter pick and the fact that you're getting the two top pitchers in the draft two first rounders when you didn't have a, a second or a third rounder to speak of uh, the Rangers felt. And I, 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 I guess my, my question, if I was sitting people down, honestly would, would be, do you feel like you took the absolute best player in the first round? Or do you feel like you made the absolute best use of your money uh, by the way you did things to get those first two picks? And I think they did a, a, a magnificent job in how they used their money to get two first round picks when they didn't when they only had one in the first four rounds. Yeah, I would disagree with that. And I would just say this, and we're going to get out of our uh, Ranger segment here uh, in a minute. Uh, but I will say, if if Chris Young, if this was Chris Young's call, ultimately, uh, you know, obviously there's always a consensus of some sort there. But if it's if he was the one driving the the bus on Kumar Rocker, I got no problem with that. I, I would trust. Chris Young's opinion about pitching, uh, and I and I think it'll be interesting to see because let's face it, 
whose judgment are you going to trust about pitching in the Rangers organization before Chris Young? You know, yeah. nobody. Uh, and that goes far past uh, John Daniels and all the people that hate John Daniels. The this organization has never developed pitching. Uh, going, you'd have to go. You know, there, it was there was a period there in the mid '80s when they drafted Kevin Brown and and uh, uh, and Kenny Rogers and Bobby Witt. And uh, there were there were yeah, those guys were all some one of them was a near Hall of Famer, uh, and the others were, were very serviceable big league pitchers. So and just to and, and Kevin to answer the other part of your question. This is a team that needs to, not just for John Daniels' um, uh, job security. And look, after 15 years running the organization, I think the guy is pretty secure long term. But this is a team that needs to win, and pretty soon. This is this is five plus consecutive losing seasons, and I have seen a level of disengagement from their fans and a level of disinterest from their fans that that is starting to rival where they were in the mid aughts, and. That's something they need to rectify. They need to create some more interest in this team, and I, I also think that from a, from a, from an interest standpoint, picking Kumar Rocker certainly was gonna was gonna create some buzz. Yeah, he does. Certainly, the most recognizable name in the draft, even before the draft, two years ago, he was the most recognizable name. The guy, uh, he, he was he, he, he took the world by fire at their his freshman year at Vanderbilt. All right, that's going to do it for our Rangers segment. All right, joining us now on our Cowboys segment of the podcast is David Moore. Hello, David. I listened to the first part. I thought this was time to come in just like the Rangers bullpen. I'll save the day here. This podcast, <laughs> I don't know, up to this point. Uh, throwing, some, throwing some gas on that fire, aren't you? <laughs> okay, thanks for Evan, doing I'm that, joking. Dude. Come on. You, I, I you haven't watched much Rangers bullpen lately. <laughs> Man alive. That is that is a fearful sight for Rangers fans. I can't tell you. I watch these games now. Now I constantly get emails from fans during the game now talking about stuff that's happening. And I'm not having to answer emails during the games about how bad all this is. It's never about something good. I can tell you that. It is never about something good. Uh, all right, David. So, uh, unlike the, the Cowboys, who have gone on quite an impressive playoff uh, stretch over these last twenty six yes, years, yes, they have. Yes, they have. Uh, so, so David, the the Cowboys will be starting up training camp next week. Yeah. Uh, if, if you can give us the mechanics of that, when the report date is, and all of that, and then we're going to talk about uh, your top storylines. Sure, they will fly out uh, next Monday. So seven days away from them flying out as this uh, podcast is dropping, as they say, in the in the business. Um, they'll get it there on, on Monday. Uh, Tuesday will be the annual State of the Cowboys address with uh, Jerry Jones, Stephen Jones, and Mike McCarthy uh, all side by side at the, uh, a table on a podium answering questions. Um, then the... Then the training camp starts, but under the new rules, the first few days, there's no pad. It's basically a walkthrough uh, the first two to three days because uh, everyone has to ru- you know, run, do their cardio and testing and pass certain tests to, to be cleared. But uh, th- And again, in today's new NFL world, their first practice will be a week from tomorrow, Wednesday. Their first padded practice will be six days after that on Monday, August 1st. So they'll be in camp a full week before they put on pads. And then you go from there and they will – This all of their camps are unusual. Um, 
from the standpoint of a lot of times they'll have the Hall of Fame game. They'll have extra, you know, preseason games. They'll go to Hawaii. Uh, this year, no exotic travel, but they're going to practice with two other teams during the course of camp. And so without going through all the mechanics, I'll just say this. The last 11 days that they are on the West Coast, they will only have three practices in Oxnard because they will leave early, go to Denver, practice with Denver, have a day off, play a preseason game in Denver, fly back for a day off, have two practices in Oxnard, then break camp and drive to Costa Mesa, California, where they'll have two practices with the Chargers, day off, final preseason game on the West Coast, and then come back. So it's Does a very odd... Like a- does this sound like a man who's a little bit bitter that he's going to be spending <laughs> less time in Oxnard or in, in or around the Marine layer? <laughs> Marine layer today, just to give everyone a little perspective, I just looked. It is 61 degrees and the Marine layer is heavy. It is thick oh. over Oxnard this morning. Oh, bite me, David. <laughs> thick Marine layer, man. That's that's hard stuff. Uh, David, how does that compare with when the Cowboys trained at, at uh, Thousand Oaks in the schedule? Well, again, a, a different era, and that you go, that goes back to the Tom Landry years. You know, they would be then they had six preseason games. Uh, they would be out in Thousand Oaks for about a month, uh, but you know, the off season program wasn't as regimented and, and not as many mileposts along the way. I mean, guys like Leroy Jordan would leave his like lumber company to come, you know, and, and get ready for training camp. It was just a different. Uh, they all had you know, jobs in the off season and uh, training camp was to get in shape. Now, if you don't come to camp in shape, uh, you're really in trouble and you're probably going to lose your starting spot and, and, and maybe your spot on the roster. So uh, it, so camp is different there, but you didn't have, I mean, it was just, you, you practice twice a day in pads uh, hitting and you did that for four to five weeks now, you know, you regulate the number of padded practices. Uh, it's just much, much, much different. I think Leonard Fournette is taking that Thousand Oaks approach, apparently. <laughs> he, he is, and that could, uh, uh, that could cost him. He, he's going to be uh, – the, the amount of cardio he's going to do in his first few days of Tampa Bay's <laughs> camp, I think, is going to be significant. <laughs> 260 pounds. Holy cow. They should move him over to guard, I think. Forget <laughs> – Forget the running back stuff. Okay, Dave, let me ask you this then. Uh, going into camp, what are your top three storylines at this moment? Well, um, you know, it's interesting. At th- this is something people are going to be watching. It's not going to happen at this moment, but Mike McCarthy's job security in his third season with the club, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and it's not unusual for any head coach in the NFL to look over his shoulder Mike McCarthy has to look over both shoulders. He has Dan Quinn over one shoulder, who just got an extension, uh, the the Cowboys defensive coordinator, and Sean Payton, uh, who is basically in every interview that comes along saying, well, no, I'm going to be happy out of football this year, but oh, sure, there are some jobs I'd be interested in. And of course, the Cowboys are on the top of my list because of Jerry Jones, and and I love my time there. So... Um, that, that is just going to be a constant. That's nothing that's going to be um, – that's not going to be minimized over the course of the season because 
the Cowboys have put themselves in a position where what happens in the regular season doesn't really matter to Mike McCarthy's job security or how this team is viewed by its fan base and others going forward. Uh, this is a team that hasn't gotten past the divisional round in 26 years. Um, it's one of the only uh, three teams in the NFC that has not played in an NFC championship game over that span. Uh, this is all about this team making the playoffs and, and going deeper than it has in, in recent years. And so I, I think there's going to be a, you know, I, it, just like Evan was talking earlier about, you know, him sensing the frustration in the Rangers fan base. Um, there's certainly a high level of skepticism with the Cowboys of like, well, check back, uh, you know, check back with me in January and tell me this team is different. So I, I'm not sure that they can do much during the regular season that's, that's going to recalibrate, uh, you know, any of that. And and I'll say this very quickly, and, and I find this fascinating, and, and we've talked about this before, you know, because Dallas, if you look at the regular season record, I mean, they've been relevant. I mean, over the span of 26, 27 years, I, you know, I think they have like one of the top 10 best records during the regular season over that span, but they have one of the worst postseason records. So there's that disconnect there. And I always maintain it's because this team doesn't go to the postseason in back-to-back years. They go have a shot and then they miss the playoffs the next year. Just to reinforce that, when do you think the last time this team went to the playoffs in back-to-back seasons was? Don't know. 2006 and 2007. Not so good. so now you're at 2022. So you're on a stretch of seven of 14 years that that this team has not packaged back-to-back playoff seasons together. The last head coach to take the team to back-to-back playoffs was Chan Gailey back in the late 90s. So in the 2000s, this no one coach has taken the team to back-to-back postseason appearances. And so Mike McCarthy would be uh, the first, which tells you, I think, puts even a little more perspective on, on you know, the failures of this team. But, but McCarthy status one, I know that's a long-winded answer. Uh, but two, um, offensively, where things stand with the loss of Amari Cooper, uh, Lyle Collins, they took uh, Cedric Wilson at receiver. They took some significant hits on offense, and and there seems to be a perception among people that, um, well, look, you you lost a lot on offense. This offense isn't going to be nearly as good. Um, from a talent perspective, that is true. I just think this offense is going to be different. I think it's going to be a little more balanced. They're going to need to be better in the run game. But uh, questions about offensively just how they make up for the loss of Amari Cooper, uh, Cedric Wilson, and uh, some of their offensive linemen in the overall scheme of things is going to be a a big point to watch. And three, um, and this is a positive antidote, I think everyone's expecting to take this step forward on defense uh, because of what they saw last year, the age of a lot of guys. Um, But that's just not a given, right? (laughs) I mean, they actually have to do that. And when you look at the number of turnovers they forced last year, are they really going to hit that level again? I mean, you know, Trayvon Diggs had the most interceptions by any player in the NFL in 40 years at 11. Uh, Is it realistic to expect him to duplicate that this year? Uh, And if you take that away, are you going to have the same number of forced turnovers? So I think this defense is going to be very good. And this is a more balanced team in my mind than they've had in a while. 
but defensive side of the ball to see if they can still take a step forward to being a very good defense uh, to a dominant defense. So th- those are the three things. I, w- I will say, yeah, that number one about the about Mike McCarthy's job status, that's the number one throughout the season. Uh, yeah. that, as you said, that goes into the playoffs. If they, I will say right now, if they, if they don't make the playoffs, Mike McCarthy's fired. It doesn't matter if, uh, if Jerry's best friend is, is still available or not. If he goes to the dolphins, you know, Sean Payton could, he might end up staying in TV, but Mike McCarthy will be fired. Uh, if they I, I was going to say that, you know, that David, when you said, um, that uh, really the regular season doesn't matter and only the playoffs do I was going to say the one exception here is there is a way the regular season could matter and it could mean you know the 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 Wade Phillips Jason Garrett kind of scenario that we once had before and and I don't know how I don't know how you guys would feel about changing coaches midstream here but that would certainly be a a Jerry doesn't do that very you know that that's not the only time he did it but but he did it because they were one in seven and they were coming off of a playoff season. Now, if you, if you have, if if the Cowboys are comparable this year, coming off a playoff season, when they won the division were 12 and five. And if they're down there around two and six or something, I I think it's completely utterly realistic uh, for him to look at making a change because at at that point uh, you feel you're, you don't even have a chance at the playoffs unless you do something dramatic. Uh, that's the most dramatic move you can make at that time of year. No question. Uh, and I will say, you know, and I agree with you about the offense. I think it will probably be a little more balanced. Uh, I think we'll see uh, more out of that backfield than, than we have seen recently. I think that it looks like Zeke's in, in good shape and his knee's not bothering him. And so these are things that will affect uh, the play calling, obviously. Um, but I, I, I do question on the defense uh, – how much of that last year was smoke and mirrors? How much of it uh, is a real thing? Because, you know, there is a, a, a big divide in the NFL uh, about Trayvon Diggs. Uh, certainly with, with uh, pro, you know, pro football, PFF, uh, I think they had him rated as one of the worst cornerbacks in the NFL. And a guy who uh, had 11 interceptions because he gave up so many yards uh, after catches. And uh, so those are, those are real issues. I, Personally, I love Trayvon Diggs. Uh, yes, he does gamble, uh, you know, but a turnover is a turnover, uh, and that is that's to me that's bigger than holding down people. You know, they had Byron Jones, right? And the deal yeah. about Byron Jones was he didn't get interceptions, but they weren't throwing it to his man, so that was good. Well, yes, and I did think that was something to be appreciated. But the flip side of that was he never had any turnovers, you know, yeah. and that and that, that is the most important thing you can do on defense is generate turnovers. I, I like my cornerbacks to get interceptions. I think that's a fair comment to me. You know, and, and again, I, I am fascinated by this because a guy does something that hasn't been done in in 40 years. And what is everyone talking about? The turnover ratio is one of the most significant determiners on who wins or loses a game. Um, and, and forcing, you know, there's this emphasis to force turnovers defensively. A cornerback comes up with 11 and you go, yeah, but you know he gave up a lot of yards elsewhere. Well, but he also gave the offense. He also took away a scoring opportunity and gave the offense a scoring opportunity, and which it which is dramatic impact. I I I think his interceptions have been minimized. The impact those interceptions had on the game, and the swagger of the defense, I, I think, have been. And again, I get it from an analytical standpoint. You can't you can't accurately gauge 
impact and swagger and confidence. I, I completely get that. But I think it's disingenuous to say that making those plays at certain parts of the game don't energize a team and lead to something of a feeding frenzy uh, that, that helps a unit. And, and, and I think Trayvon Diggs did that. I, I thought him and Micah Parsons played off each other, uh, you know, in, in ways we haven't seen uh, Dallas defenders do in a long, long time. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how he comes back this year. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd have no doubt that, uh, listen, if, 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 uh, if Trayvon ends up with six or seven interceptions, that's still a great season. You know, that's still uh, going to put him in the top five in the league, probably. Well, right? Absolutely. I don't, I don't see him coming back with 11 or double digits again. Yeah. I just, I just don't see it, but, but uh, I, do I will th- say the last time you know, it happened was, was uh, another cowboy, Everson Walls, who had 11 interceptions as a rookie. And I believe he came back the next year with seven and the year after that, I think with eight. So, I mean, it, it's, uh, um, I, I think it's still reasonable to expect that he's going to. And again, I, I just find it fascinating, too, because really, what have we been talking about in the offseason for so long? Uh, how really no one on the Cowboys roster, they went for years and no one had more than three interceptions. And you're talking about, well, no one, you know, there's no one back there. There are no playmakers back there. Now, suddenly you have a guy come up with 11 interceptions and, and just like break the scale. And it's like, yeah, well, but you know he gives up some stuff too. Y- yeah. Yes, he does. But, he does. But let's, I, let's weigh I, this on balance, you know. And I think that was one of the reasons why Everson Walls got so many interceptions was that quarterbacks kept throwing at him because he wasn't yeah. fast, and so people felt like we can we can beat this guy. And I think exactly. people probably still think they can beat Trayvon Diggs because he does give up stuff. Uh, but he's also extremely fast. He's not he's not anything like Everson from that standpoint. He's one of the yeah. fastest cornerbacks in the NFL. Well, he was a second round pick. Everson Walls was not you know was not drafted. Right. Exactly. All right, that's going to do it for our uh, Cowboys segment this week. Uh, we're going to have, obviously, a lot more talk about that next week as they're in training camp. Um, but I want to go to our ever-popular potpourri segment. Uh, and coming up in this Evan loves this segment. He does. He, he loves potpourri in general. You, you, know, you go into his house, and it just smells so wonderful in there. It's so nice, pleasant. A little uh, lavender, I think, is probably what he goes for. Uh, we're going to talk about first up in the potpourri segment. I want to talk about, uh, the fact that ESPN reported that the big 12 and the PAC 12, uh, were discussing several possibilities. Uh, the biggest of which would have been a potential merger between the two, which they would actually take on all the schools from both leagues. Uh, and that fell apart reportedly because the big 12 said, nah, I don't think so. Uh, and, and frankly, I'm not surprised by that at all. Uh, and now what we're seeing is a, a lot of people from Oregon saying that, uh, well, this is great news because we don't want to be in the Big 12. Uh, that, that doesn't move the needle for us. We want to be in the Big 10 because supposedly the Big 10 has interest in Oregon and Washington and maybe perhaps Stanford as well. So, uh, of course, the problem with all that is that the Big Ten is waiting on Notre Dame, and the Notre and Notre Dame is going to make everybody wait. The, the, we're talking about years. I, I I would expect that Notre Dame, as long as they have an avenue to the playoffs, whatever that may be, I believe that Notre Dame will wait and wait and wait to make this decision. So the problem for me, uh, if I'm an Oregon fan, I can look down my nose at the Big Twelve all I want, and and rightfully so, uh, is that what if George Kleokoff, the Pac-12 commissioner, makes me sign a grant of rights for five years or 10 years. And it's not going to be a five year. They'll, they'll, they'll try to make them do it for 10 years. Do you really want to be locked up 
in the Pac-12 for 10 years waiting on, on, the, on the Big Ten when you could go to what is frankly a better league. Uh, the Pac-12 was already a lesser league than the Big 12 before. Uh, the loss of Texas and Oklahoma obviously put a big dent in the Big 12, but they added four pretty good schools. Um, they're in the process of adding four big or Pac-12 schools, and they could widen that net to include Oregon and Washington. So, well, that's the whole thing. I mean, it's you don't want to just merge the conferences because then you're still taking some of the bottom teams that don't move the needle for you. The only way it makes sense to rate another conference is to take the most attractive uh, members left. And so, yeah, I, I think we're well beyond the uh, uh, you have to take it all or nothing. This is we're, we're in the pick and choose the, the a la carte. Uh, part of of college football realignment. Yeah, there's no question about that. If you so, if you see, it, it, let me ask you this then: if, if let's say that the Big Twelve ends up with the Arizona schools, Utah, and Colorado, which of course Colorado was once a member of the Big Twelve, and then they get Oregon and Washington too, that effectively guts the Pac-12. Uh, they, they will no longer I be. I think that to- leaves the Pac-12 with Cal and. Stanford. Yeah. yeah. So they, they would be looking at something else completely different. And, and the problem is, is if you talk to people out there on the West coast is that, that, you know, there, there's too much apathy uh, in, the, in the West coast about football to begin with. And there's just a lot of, listen, here's the other thing that Oregon has to think about is that when you're on the West coast, you're out of the loop. You know, your games are over at one and two o'clock in the morning. Nobody's paying any attention to these games. Not only do the people locally not pay attention to it, uh, the people on the East coast are not paying attention. If you can get into games in the central time zone, uh, well then you're going to be, you're going to be helping your cause quite a bit to do that. So that's another factor in all of this as, as they go forward. So I, I would think that, uh, that the, you know, the big 12, it's, it's been pretty much conceded. We've pretty much confirmed that they have talked to those first four schools we talked about. Those, those would be nice additions because they bring you a couple of TV markets that are top 20, and that would be good. And they're big state schools with large alumni bases. And when they go to these streaming contracts, which they eventually will do uh, yep. with Apple and, and, the, and the rest, that will that, those will be very attractive uh, schools for them from that standpoint and will, dri- and will really drive uh, that market. But adding, you, adding Oregon and Washington, uh, especially Oregon, that, that's a really – now you're talking about adding a school that approximates what Texas and Oklahoma were uh, to the Big 12. So that would be a, a big plum. So they, they do need to be able to get Oregon to believe in this kind of thing. And if I'm, if I'm the new uh, uh, Big 12 commissioner, I am going to say all I can, you don't want to be yoked to the Pac-12 for the next five or ten years, really. You know, now the question that would come out of that is then would you have to put up with Oregon like you had to put up with Texas and Oklahoma and the constant flirtations with other leagues? I think it's a possibility of that. I think the rest of the teams that are going to be added uh, will end up being for the first time uh, in the history of the Big 12 and the Southwest Conference, for that matter. You'll have leagues or teams across the board that are pretty happy to be there with each other. And they they know they don't have anything better to, to go along. So there might at last be peace in the conference peace in our time for Neville Chamberlain. Um, all right. So let's, uh, let's uh, also, I want, we want to talk, but, but about- I think real quick, I, I think you bring up a great point on that because so often, and 
we're talking about schools now joining a conference, but you also do this when management goes out to get a head coach or something that had no intention of coaching anymore, didn't want to coach anymore, but we got them back because we did a great salesmanship job and we convinced them this was a good place. How often, that's a different dynamic, right? I think you're exactly right. If you have to talk Oregon into coming into the league and then talk about what a great salesmanship job you did and we got them in here and boy, this is great. You're always going to have to worry about them leaving and going somewhere else. I, I just think, um, yeah, gr- great salesmanship job. You convinced them you got them in here, but they had initial doubts. They didn't really want to do it. Those doubts are always going to be there. I think the one thing that uh, they're going to be thinking about is if we, because the, the, the TV contract will be coming up, they're already going to start negotiating that. Obviously, in 2025 is when all this stuff breaks uh, for the Big 12 anyway, uh, is that if we've got Oregon aboard when we make the contract, uh, then maybe that's good enough for us. If we're getting a ten, if we get a ten-year deal out of it, and we've yeah. got Oregon aboard, if they leave after five years, okay. But we've already got their money, so I think that might be a, a, a one uh, considering point. Uh, all right, we also had the the British Open last week, uh, which was one on the last day by uh, Cameron Smith, who came out of nowhere uh, and Cinderella story. Cinderella, a Cinderella story, not a Cinderella looking guy. That is that I got to tell you that that mustache and and that mullet is the worst marriage since Jerry Lee Lewis married his 13 year old cousin. I'm going to I'm going to tell you that is a bad look. You know, see, like, again, if we were if we were trying to hook that younger audience, we might have <laughs> used like a, one of Britney Spears marriages or. Did she marry her cousin? Let, let me ask you that. Did she no, marry she her 13-year-old cousin? She had a bad marriage. Um, you have to go know, back in time, and that's the whole point of it, is that it's the worst I, I, marriage. I know, but people, are, people don't know Jerry Lewis. They don't know Jerry Lee Lewis. They, they, they don't know any well, That's of the problem. Stuff. You don't know Jerry Lee Lewis. You can't even name I me one Jerry song. I know Jerry Lee Lewis. Name me one song. Great Balls of Fire. Wow, look at you. Way to go, Evan. That, so, up. that was so impressive. Uh, so anyway, uh, and then, uh, of course, after the press conference, he is asked, so uh, when will you be leaving for the LIV golf? And he said, hey, I just won. Because I, I don't have my Australian accent on, so I'm not going to try. <laughs> no, uh, no, do that. Do this no, in no, the Australian I'm accent, I'm not going to do that. He, he said, I, I just won. And you're asking me that question. And it's like, yeah, we're, we're asking you that question. And then, he, then his next comment was, I don't know, mate. Uh, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just playing golf. I got people that say this, which is obviously a confirmation. He's going. When you say that, <laughs> you have just told us, yes, you're going. So – that that is really uh, to me. This is the first big signing. The, the, I keep reading stories saying, "Oh, all the big names that they're bringing to the LIB golf." Yes, there are big names of guys who have not won in years, who have not won a major in years, and who have not really won any tournaments in years. Uh, there there are a bunch of guys who are on the downside of their careers uh, and are looking for a payday, and that's why they are taking this. Now, Cam Smith, he's different. This is a guy who's a tremendous putter, probably the best putter on tour, and really has a lot of potential. And he just won the British Open. Now, now you're uh, if you're LIB golf, now you're really talking. I, I don't, I'm not as moved by the other guys that have, have made that uh, jump, uh, but I am by that one. Uh, and also now we see that David, uh, you know, Dallas Fort Worth's own David Faraday 
is jumping to LIB Golf to be a broadcaster over there. I assume he will have a larger role than he did here. Um, I don't think you know, that was one of the things about David. You know, he's obviously a very funny guy, a very uh, knowledgeable golf analyst. I think he probably could have had a much bigger role here on the PGA Tour. I would have enjoyed listening to him. I, I think probably uh, the the higher-ups uh, on the tour are not impressed by that kind of thing. They like the accent. We always like a British accent for some reason when we're, when we're watching golf. If there's a you know if there's a, a tour event without a British accent, we all get hives. Uh, but I think they felt like, oh, you're too you're a little too irreverent, and we don't want that. So I, I would think that maybe this is one of the things motivating David, besides the fact he's probably getting a pretty big because payday. it's important that golf take itself more seriously. Um, <laughs> but and, yeah, and, I mean, that's that's the point. Yeah. So let me ask you this question, um, Kevin. I, I do you think that the bet among LIV um, players and uh, and organizers is look in another six months this is all just going to die out. People will move on to the next thing in terms of what they're of of, of, of what they're uh, they're up in an uproar over. And, and the second part is does the dynamic of the president of the United States going to Saudi Arabia and meeting with, you know, the man behind supposedly the blood money, is that going to change the public dynamic and how it views LIV? Well, you had the, the former president saying that they ought to go do this. And so that's going to make the, that's going to change it for a lot of people, right? A lot of people are going to say, because Donald Trump said it was okay and you should take the money, then there's nothing wrong with this. Uh, so uh, yeah, I do think. And he's hosting a tournament on, on one of his properties in uh, New Jersey. Yes, he is. Uh, so I, I think that this uh, probably will start to die out a little bit. I do think that as long as the PGA Tour, uh, you know, keeps suspending guys who, who make this jump, I do think that will keep a lot of guys from going. Because I think, frankly, the, the, the top, the real top tier of golfers, the guys from Dallas, you know, the guys, guys who are who are actually winning a lot now, they're making enough money. They like it. They're they're concerned about history. They're concerned about how they – where do I – where am I going to end up ranking in history? Because this LIV stuff's not going to count. It's like you go to the USFL, you know, and, and play over there. Uh, you, you, those those yards don't count towards my NFL totals. So if you if you have a concern about that, and I do think most golfers do have a, a, a sense of history and where they rank in that. So I, I don't think it's going to have a huge impact. I think the thing that Donald Trump says, and I think it's true, is that there's a, the potential – for a merger here. So if there is a merger at some point, then, you know, well, then these guys got in on the ground floor of it and they probably end up making more money. So I, I don't know what's going to happen in the, in the long run, but I, I do find it interesting along with the fact that besides David Faraday, Charles Barkley is apparently also going to talk to him about it. So I can't imagine they're going to let the Charles go out there and swing a club. So let's <laughs> well, I think this is, it's, uh, I think this is going to be contentious it. for a while. I really do. Uh, well, I don't think there's any question about it. It's going to be contentious. Because, I think because it, it, now, yeah, I mean, okay, so so if Cameron goes, all of a sudden, the LIV Tour is going to want to pick off all the major winners, right? That, right? That's kind of the next, that's the next plan to force a merger or to get, and, and so now, I mean, their whole thing is to acquire enough players and to have enough suspended from the Tour that it delegitimizes the tour and now you're putting the four majors into the position of okay 
what rules are we going to have in place on who qualifies to participate in the majors? And the majors right now can go, oh, no, we're going to, you know, we're not going to recognize this LIV tour. If you jump over there for the money, you know what? We just may make it a little more stringent for you to be a part of this, which is fine to say now. But if you look up a year from now, two years from now, and seven of the top 10 golfers in the world are on the LIV tour, are the majors really going to say, no, we're not going, you're not playing in this tournament. So, I mean, that's, that's where the battleground is. I mean, the majors are going to try want to acquire more. You know? They're going to want the draws. They're going to want the draws for attendance and they're sure. going to want the draws for TV. And so exactly. it's just, their, their alliance will be with whatever is going to make them more money, which is basically what all of this comes down to, whether we're talking conference realignment, the Rangers draft, the Cowboys, or, or the LIV. It, it's what's sure. going to make everybody the most money. And that's what drives sports. It's what drives the world. So, um, you're just so cynical. I am, man. I'm a cynical man. Can I tell you though, my favorite quote of the week? No, please. David, don't. Was, was, Kumar okay. Rocker was asked in his, uh, very brief media availability on Sunday night about this arm surgery that he had. And he, pretty much just kind of cut the question off and said, yeah, I can't really talk about that, bro. Yeah, My favorite like quote that. of the week. <laughs> can't talk about arms, right? It's like, it's like, what are you, a hockey player all of a sudden? It's a lower body, yeah. in, lower body injury? Really nobody's going to nobody's gonna come after you. Yeah, I don't understand that at all. All right, so that's going to do it for our, uh, our podcast this week. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time. Bye.